Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. In a democracy, you want to know what somebody stands for, but also who they are. I think the scale of it, though, was absolutely overwhelming. Did I ever think of leaving? I mean, you always weigh up the impact on your family and you weigh up what other people are saying to you by ain't no quitter. I just wonder to what extent this contest was a test of your faith. It was a test of how strongly I'm willing to be myself. Hello and welcome to Hollywood Sources. I'm Callum McDonald. Thanks very much for being with us today for a special episode. Between now and the end of the episode, you will be hearing exclusively from Kate Forbes, who was in the running to be the new SNP leader and, of course, First Minister as well. Uh, we've got a big long chat coming up with Kate and Naomi, potentially, so do stay with us for that. We'll get to Kate in the next few minutes. As ever, uh, on Holyrood Sources, we're joined by Jeff Aberdeen, who was Chief of Staff to Alex Salmond as First Minister. Hello, Jeff. Good morning. Hello, hello. We've got Andy McKeever with us as well, who was Director of Communications for the Scottish Conservatives. Hello, Andy. Hello, and just so let's just clarify who we've got then, Callum. We've got the former <laughs> Chief of Staff to Scotland's First Minister. Yeah. We've got the former Scottish Government Finance Secretary and candidate for First Minister. And we've got the man who was edged into fifth place in the Western Isles general election <laughs> in 2005. Fifth okay. place? I think so, if I remember rightly. <laughs> yeah. You lose count after just, three, don't you? It's important for the listeners to know the calibre of person they're talking to. I just thought it was important to clarify that at the start. <laughs> Andy, I think, Andy I, think, I, I think we're all very well aware of the calibre of person we've got. You didn't need to evidence it. I also think we should say a proper hello to Kate and Naomi, who are here. Hello, Kate. 
Hello, and I apologise for the little voice that's coming from the girl who would not sleep over the course of this podcast, but it's great to be able to join you. Not at all. It's lovely to have you both with us, and uh, we will do a proper welcome and a proper hello to you in the next few minutes. First of all, Jeff and Andy, just by way of um, getting us set for today, and just putting the week in context, it has been um, nearly, well, not even a week, since Monday that Hamza Youssef was elected as leader of the SNP. Lots has happened since then. And perhaps most notably, the kind of first set piece, first minister's questions um, on Thursday. Uh, Andy, let's come to you first, just for a bit of a thought, actually, on on how it went. I always, I'm always slightly anxious about judging a first a first outing on anything, but there is validity to it. So talk us through it. What was your take? Uh, well, obviously, it was it was scarred. Those of us in Scotland who who watched the news last night will have uh, known that it was it was pretty well scarred by protesters uh, once again, which has been happening over the last few weeks. In general, I think everybody, all the key participants, Hamza Yusuf and Asarwar and Douglas Ross, will have felt pretty broadly okay about First Minister's questions yesterday. And Asarwar has been uh, going on health pretty much every week now for a number of months. He did that again yesterday. That suits him because he wants to show Hamza Youssef uh, in his eyes as having been a poor health secretary, so he can do that. But also it suits Hamza Youssef quite well as well, because he was a health secretary. There's not, you know, he knows the brief, so he knows what he's going to be asked, and it's relatively comfortable ground for him. And, 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 you know, Douglas Ross will talk about independence as much as possible because Hamza Youssef has created an independence minister. Um, Douglas Ross will want to talk about that quite a lot. And again, that's not territory Hamza Youssef will be will be too worried about. So I thought everybody did okay. I think the other important thing, there's got to be a health warning here. I mean, I dare say that those of us on this podcast could be considered amongst the political geekery who think the First Minister's questions is terribly, terribly important. But remember, at 12 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon, a lot of people in this country still work and don't watch First Minister's questions. And by the time they package it up for news at night, you tend just to get the best bits of what everybody said anyway. So it is not as critically important as we might want it to be. I remember way, way, way back in the day when David McCletchie, when he was Tory leader, used to do very well at First Minister's questions every week. Didn't help the Tories when it got to the ballot box. Um, So I think we can overstate the importance of First Minister's questions, but nonetheless, it was interesting to see the new setup uh, as it will now be. And it gave us a pretty good indication, in fairness, uh, of what the topics are going to be and what the performances will be like. Jeff, Andy says there, you know, it's about packaging up the best bits for the news. Were there many best bits to choose from, as far as you're concerned? Well, I think it, given it was Hamza Yusuf's first uh, outing at FMQs, I reckon we've got to uh, accept he was probably going to be a bit nervous and apprehensive. Who wouldn't be? Uh, it is a different ball game to doing ministerial portfolios. And I think the biggest objective for Hamza was not to have a big cock-up, a gaffe, uh, or an error that would have been picked up on in the media. And to that extent, he certainly didn't. I thought, actually, he did pretty well. He seemed in command of his brief. Um, he had some facts and figures uh, at his disposal to use throughout the different questions. But there's two things that I picked up on that you may want to polish up on, I thought. Firstly, there was a lot of script reading between the questions. Um, uh, and I thought, you know, if I'm, I'm the opposition, I'm looking at that and saying, OK, so he's, he's reading from scripts. I'm going to try a more pointed, shorter, targeted question, see if I can catch him off, off guard and see if he's fleet of foot and responding to that. So maybe just to look at that honing of your uh, answers. Uh, the second thing on tone, uh, you know, 
First Minister's questions, uh, given the very nature of it, there's a lot of wide range of subjects that come up. You need to be able to decide whether you're going to be combative, uh, sombre, compassionate, serious, anger. All these things can be used. These different characteristics can be used in answer to different questions. And I thought he did pretty well uh, with Anna Sarwar when he was being asked about a very serious healthcare issue. And before with Douglas Ross, he was a bit more combative on the uh, independent stuff. But there was a question from a backbencher that might uh, have been Jeremy Balfour, I'm not sure. Uh, and I thought, you know, the tone just didn't quite match the, the seriousness of the question. And that's something you've really got to look out for going forward. Because Andy's right. Yeah, everyone's at, at home or at work or doing their uh, normal duties at, uh, at 12 o'clock or 12.30 on a, on a Thursday. But nonetheless, there is a perception that, that emanates from FMQ. So I do think it's important that they see the right tonal First Minister at times as well. So uh, a good outing, though, and I think overall he'll be pretty pleased. Yeah, it was Jeremy Balfour, I think, that you're referencing. Um, he was quite, kind of, Yusuf was quite dismissive, actually, of, of Jeremy Balfour. He was asking about how many of his constituents had not yet received the Scottish child payment. And he was he described crocodile tears from, from Balfour. So I think that's the tone you're picking up on, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's, 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 it, that's exactly it. And I think you've just got to bear in mind, you're not expected to go... Um, for the throat, the jugular, every time. You've got to listen to the question. A lot of important questions that come up at first minister question. Understand and, and, and take a decision in your head pretty quickly about the tone that you're going to deploy going forward. I'm going to give him a big pass on the on this occasion. It was the first first minister's questions. He wouldn't have had the same time to prepare. He had to get sworn in, appoint a cabinet and all these things. So we'll give him a pass on that basis. But I think you've got to look out for that in the future. Yeah, really interesting. And just as the first kind of working week then for Hamza Yusuf concludes, Andy... Have we learned anything that we didn't know before about his sense of direction? Where are we going here? Um, I think what we've learned is that he has continued his campaign. Um, there was discussion at the very start of the week when, when Hamza Youssef was, was pronounced the winner on Monday. There was discussion, there was almost a presumption that the cabinet would be created um, from all sides of the party and that he would reach across the divide that had been exposed by the result in the leadership campaign. I, I, he hasn't, right? He hasn't. Um, you know, 10 out of the 10 people around that cabinet serve, uh, cabinet table supported Hamza Youssef. 10 out of 10 of the people around that cabinet table served in Nicola Sturgeon's government. Uh, nine out of the ten around that cabinet table are from urban constituencies. The only rural constituency around that table is uh, Mary Goodgen, Angus North and Mearns, and it's not like middle of nowhere rural. I mean, the dual carriageway between Dundee and Aberdeen goes right through it. So, you know, th it, this is uh, a cabinet uh, which has been created out of the campaign, uh, and I think it is a strategic decision by Hamza Youssef to say, I am the winner. This is the side of party I'm from. I am running a government from the left with the people that I wanted in my cabinet. And this is our direction of travel. Mm. Um, and I think it's, I mean, I, I said in the other podcast, I think it's a very brave thing to do. Uh, it lays everything out on the table. Uh, and like all political strategies, we can discuss until we're blue in the face whether it's a good strategy or a bad strategy. We'll know come the election whether it's a good strategy or a bad strategy. It's certainly brave, though, because he knows that much of his party wanted something else. He knows that much of the country wanted something else. But he said, I'm my own man. This is what I'm doing. This is where I'm going. And let's see how we get on.
Um, Jeff, I hesitate to ask this. I've got an email here that's uh, been sent into hello at hollywoodsources.com from Alistair. This is always dangerous. From, <laughs> from, Alistair, <laughs> from Alistair Ross, who says, FAO Andrew and Jeffrey, because we accidentally <laughs> stumbled into using your Sunday names on the last episode. He said, might it be possible for you pair to disagree a bit more? I'm having trouble telling you apart. So do you agree yeah. or disagree with what Andy's just said in terms of that direction, that sense of where we're headed? Well, how about we agree not to take Alistair Ross out for lunch next time we see him? <laughs> yeah, exactly. If this is the same all Alistair Ross that I suspect it is, I'm going to take anything he says with a pinch of salt as much as I, as I respect his capabilities. <laughs> uh, I suspect him. He does have his title on his email. Would you like that? Uh, Assistant Director, Head of Public Policy, Association of British Insurers. Yeah. He's, 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 he's a fine man. He's a, yeah, he's he's a fine man. He's disappointed at me because um, I've had to turn down going to the Aberdeen St Johnston game on Saturday because I'm going to be making towel babies at some antenatal class so he's no happy with me right now I've let him down <laughs> so it sounds like Alistair more agreement is in the pipeline so thanks for your email you can email anytime of course as you're listening to us today you might want to send in your response we'd love to hear those we'll read them on the next episode the email address is hello at hollywoodsources.com uh, thank you for being here make sure you follow and subscribe to the podcast as well we're very grateful for you listening but it'd be even better if you'd come back every single episode uh, so please make sure you do right today is a special of uh, of Hollywood sources. Uh, we are very, very glad to be here, as I say, um, and we are uh, pleased to welcome Kate Forbes exclusively to Hollywood sources for this episode. Uh, Kate, hello. Hello, lovely Hi. to be here. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for doing this. This is an exclusive interview with Kate Forbes, by the way. Uh, you will not hear her anywhere else. So we're very grateful, very grateful for that and very grateful for your time. Um, I, I, I want to start actually just by asking, how are you? How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you very much. It's been quite the tumultuous week, I think, but after five weeks on a roller coaster, it's actually been really nice to get home, to settle down, to put all the washing on, <laughs> and to make sure that uh, we've got enough food in the fridge. <laughs> Did it feel like a, like a long five weeks or a short five weeks? Oh, it felt like five years, I have to say. It was packed. I think we had hustings almost every night during uh, those weeks. And even after voting opened, uh, we were still doing hustings. And of course, just travelling around the country. So uh, from Inverness to Dumfries, which is the way a contest should be fought. Uh, but certainly it was it was not the short contest that it was being branded at the outset. Yeah, it's interesting that, and I, I have to say, and I said this on the Times Radio programme as well, that we were actually quite in awe at how available you were as candidates, whether it be at hustings or TV debates or radio debates or whatever, that actually you were you were in front of people all the time. And that, that must be exhausting, actually. Um, yes, but actually... That is the way I think democracy should operate. Mm. I mean that genuinely, that we were constantly being scrutinised, questioned. I don't think anybody could blame us uh, for hiding from the cameras, but also from, from, from members. And, you know, the SNP is a, a large party, despite you know questions about membership. We're still a huge party. And so to allow as many members as possible to come and put their questions, I think was, was really good. How easy or, or difficult was it for you to decide to run? 
It was excre extremely difficult. That first weekend before I concluded that I would go for it, I was so torn because I had been on maternity leave for six months at that point. I'd barely read a newspaper. My primary source of information was mother and toddler groups <laughs> in the Highlands. And, you know, I've loved being on maternity leave. I've loved having a little baby. And it was a case of being thrown in at the deep end, right into the full glare of national media, and in some cases, international media. And I knew that was coming. And I knew that if I won, um, I'd be saying goodbye to any work-life balance. So I was really torn. But what actually pushed me over the edge to go for it was the fact that I was a young mother, in that I looked at my little girl and I felt like I had a great vested interest in doing everything I can to make Scotland the best place for her to grow up and for her peers to grow up in as well. So in a sense, the one thing that was saying I shouldn't go for it was the very thing that was telling me I had to go for it. And I listened to that second voice. Do you feel like you were that you were welcomed into the contest by by the SNP and by the by the country, I suppose? What's your in a sort of retrospective hindsight feel on that? Was it, was it a yes. warm thing to be a part of? Yes, because you have to remember who we're talking about when you say the SNP. The SNP, to me, are my local activists. They're my local branch members. They are my family and friends who I've grown up with in many cases. And I wouldn't have run had I not felt their encouragement and their support prior to that weekend I decided, uh, not just on that weekend. So yes, there was a welcome from people who had been encouraging me to think of it for some time and encouragement from those who felt like I had something to offer, not just to the role of First Minister, but to the debate, you know, to make sure that the debate dealt with issues around the economy, dealt with rural issues, mm. dealt with issues that might affect uh, women and, and young families. So there was definitely a lot of warmth um, when, I, when I said I was going to run. Yeah, Kate, it's, it's Jeff here. Um, I, I thought it was quite interesting when uh, you said it was an extremely difficult decision and uh, your, Naomi there made a, a loud exclaim, um, <laughs> I, I thought, to, to kind of agree with that. Um, let's turn to the, the, the first week then, uh, the, which was hugely kind of controversial in terms of you espousing your, your personal beliefs. Were you surprised at the sheer weight and kind of eminence, if you will, of the response to that? Not just from people in the party, but out with that as well. And did it ever actually make you think, do you know what, I might just not want to do this anymore and, and stand aside from the contest? Well, it wasn't a surprise to know that it was a matter of interest because I've stood for election twice, won both times, but of course, on a local level, questions and queries were raised because in a democracy, you want to know what somebody stands for, but also who they are. I think the scale of it, though, was absolutely overwhelming. And bear in mind that before I'd said a word over that first weekend, you know, I hadn't said a word in the public domain for six months. And... The press and Twitter were almost in meltdown about who I was and what I believed. So I knew that before I launched, there would be, this would be the primary question. I suppose I hoped that once it had been answered, 
we'd be able to move on. And of course, I wanted to be honest with the electorate. I didn't want to look like I was running from giving direct answers or hiding who I was, because I figured that people would, uh, you know, just make that the primary issue uh, to attack me with. And I thought by answering directly, we'd be able to move on, knowing that the electorate would then make an informed decision. So I was surprised at the scale of it and for how long it lasted and how long it took for us to get on to more substantive issues of policy, i.e. things I actually wanted to do, not issues that were related to who I am. And did I ever think of leaving? I mean, you always weigh up the impact on your family and you weigh up what other people are saying to you, but I ain't no quitter. So at the end of the day, you know, I, I, I'm not a quitter. And I was probably unlikely to, to ever quit because I believe that when I set my face to do something, I do it, no matter the challenges. Yeah, you certainly displayed resilience. Can, can I ask, did you, do you regret, I, I totally accept what you said in terms of being full out, fully out there proactively in terms of your beliefs. Do you regret how you might have explained it as opposed to what you were explaining? Well, I always think that as uh, as a politician, there's much to learn in hindsight. And I'm somebody that very carefully reflects on, on how I say things as well as what I say. And there's much for me to learn about how I answered uh, questions um, in, in a way that didn't make people feel like I was targeting them but actually was, was, was more carefully balanced in how I answered. Um, there's no excuses, but remember, these were the first interviews I'd done in literally seven months. <laughs> and uh, they were back to back that first day. Uh, but I'm not someone that ever, ever focuses on excuses. Kate, um, and just for listeners, it's Andy here moving from Jeff to Andy, even though Alistair Ross might not know the difference. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, during that first week, a lot of your colleagues at Holyrood and Westminster said a lot about you and your remarks and what you'd said. Um, how are you feeling with the prospect of going back into the building, back to Holyrood, back to see all of the people who, I guess, many of whom you would consider friends, who've said things about you, which um, I presume move that relationship to a different place. How does that, how do you recover from that? How are you feeling about going back? Well, I went back in last week for the first time and went back in again on Tuesday. And certainly from my perspective, I believe that the contest has been and gone. We're over the finish line and it's passed. So I'm very happy to pick up where I left it with friends and colleagues last summer. Uh, that's always gonna be a two-way street. So, you know, it, it remains to be seen whether the hand of friendship, as it were, that I offer out is reciprocated. And inevitably after a contest, it takes a while for the dust to settle. And, you know, there's sometimes a perception that politicians aren't human. You know, we're as sensitive as anyone else. <laughs> you know, we're, we, we, we feel personal relationships as much as anyone else. Uh, but I'll be going back in. So th th there might be an element of awkwardness and tension. We had a group meeting last week 
And I think that was good for just having those first conversations with people. Obviously, I've not been able to get around everyone, but I hope that I will be able to get around everyone. And, you know, I hope that, that, that any tension or awkwardness will very quickly disappear. So, right, we're in the campaign and, you know, we're beyond that first week. You, you've, you've, um, you've, you've, you've approached the STV debate. You've gone pretty punchy on um, what you saw as uh, Humza's weaknesses in incumbency. But you really, really tried to establish a, a narrative, an economic narrative um, that was being described by, you know, your opponents and others as a lurch to the right. And my one reflection on this, and I, I said to the guys in a podcast earlier this week, I, I looked out some old speeches from my time in government in 2007 and 2011, and a lot of what you were saying, you know, wealth creation for wealth distribution, uh, increasing our tax takes so that we can afford greater social provision, was actually, you know, very sim similar to what, you know, Alex Salmon said, what John Swinney said in those first two uh, kind of governments. Uh, did you find that a bit strange that you were being attacked on that front uh, in, in that respect? Absolutely. I think it's one of the most bizarre accusations. And I think it genuinely was a bit of spin and smear to try and progress uh, other candidates' prospects. Because it, there's nothing right wing about wanting to take families out of poverty. And it's just a logical, rational position that in order to redistribute wealth, you absolutely must be able to create it in the first place. And you can create it in a way that doesn't exacerbate inequalities. Now, there's a number of different ways of doing that. But if you look at any analysis right now about the, the Scottish uh, tax base or the Scottish economy, every report says that we absolutely need to take account of things like depopulation, of things like the fact that you know those at the, the highest um, additional or higher rate tax thresholds are contributing significantly and they are quite vulnerable in terms of where we're uh, sourcing uh, that tax revenue. So all of that, to my mind, is, is, is factual and it's not right wing to suggest that we need to manage our economy well in such a way as to create the wealth to redistribute. I mean, I, I agree with that completely. I think that is logical. In fact, I find it it's quite centrist and I find it quite Scandinavian, actually, because parties of all uh, ideological makeups in Scandinavia will always work on the basis that redistributing wealth is an excellent idea, but you've got to create the stuff first before you can redistribute it. Otherwise, there's, there's no point in, in talking about it. I do think, though, that... Um, Talking about economic growth and talking about wealth creation, uh, even even though you then talk about redistributing it, it has become uh, quite niche in Scotland over the last five or six years because it's not something that uh, the latest iterations of the Scottish government particularly have liked to do, and it isn't something that Hamza Yusuf did a lot of. He talked a lot about the well-being economy uh, and a lot about uh, increasing taxes and so on, but he didn't talk a lot about economic growth uh, in that in that instance. Um, do, you, do you think that the, at heart, the government over the last five or six years has moved away from that basic thesis that in order to redistribute go growth, you have to create it? And secondly, there was definitely a perception in the media 
that because you were talking about these things as being central to your campaign, that you were losing badly because it's not what the members wanted to hear. Did you get a feeling right from the start when you started talking about those sorts of things in week two and onwards? Did you know it was actually working? And did you know that the media and commentaria were wrong to think that it was going to be a complete failure? Well, there's a few things I'd say about that. First of all, on your first point, has it been forgotten about? Bear in mind that economic growth is literally an excluded element of the Butte House Agreement. So there's clearly a difference of opinion on it. And I do find it a remarkable view that in a time of high inflation, a time of uh, stagnant growth, basically, we and at a time where costs of government are significant and growing. I mean, you look at the latest Scottish Fiscal Commission uh, report on on financial sustainability, and you'll see quite you know vividly that the fact that you know health is going to increase. I think health accounts for about 63% of spending growth over the period that they're looking at. So if you believe in a health service free at the point of need, you have to have the revenue to reinvest. So that's to answer your first part. In terms of whether I thought this was working or not, I have a, a slight issue in that I say what I think needs to be said rather than whether I think it plays well or not. And I think this discussion about tax and economic prosperity absolutely needs to be said. So did I have any sort of uh, incredible insights as to how it was playing? Uh, no, I didn't. But I did know that it needed to ha be part of the debate. Uh, but lastly, I go back to my point that our economic, sorry, our, our membership are wide and diverse. And if I look locally or nationally at our, our members, we've got members who run extremely successful businesses extremely successful small and medium-sized businesses. We've got members who are on the left who believe in economic prosperity. And I think if you look at the final result of the election, you'll see that there is a lot of people for whom my messages about economic prosperity resonated. Mm. With that in mind, and you mentioned, you said spin and smear a few minutes ago when it came to um, you know, accusations made against you around economic growth and your economic policy. So with with what you've said about the members and the sort of broad church that the SNP is, is, was this a party machine issue that just wasn't ready to accept this economic message, despite the fact it might not be new, according to what Jeff was saying? I mean, I don't really know what the party machine is, because again, to my mind, a party of what's over 70,000 uh, members um, it's carried by its members mm. at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, SNP headquarters have been nothing but helpful and supportive in the way that they've managed the whole contest. I do think it just boils down to an election mm. and there will be some who want to see another candidate win and they'll do, you know, they'll back that candidate, they'll support that candidate, they'll they'll get support for that candidate, they'll brief on behalf of that candidate and it's the nature of a, of a contest mm. and quite obviously you only need to look at Twitter and Facebook to see that uh, one of the other candidates had huge amounts of support from elected representatives. But if you look at, for example, the percentage of elected representatives that backed them versus the number of uh, percentage of members that backed them, there's clearly a bit of a disconnect, I would suggest. Interesting. That was a really interesting thought, actually. With that in mind, then, when you look at yeah. the cabinet, do you feel like those members who run small and medium-sized businesses that you talk about, do you feel like they are poorly represented? Well, we have a new excellent minister for 
business, I believe, in the form of uh, Richard Lockhead. And, you know, I've worked with Richard over the last few years. He was in my team and he's brilliant. Um, I do really regret, deeply regret the absence of Ivan McKee because Ivan is exceptional. He has the confidence of so many, not just in the business community, but, you know, amongst workers. He's somebody that really does appeal to a, a number of different or you know groups and domains that we need as part of a thriving Scottish economy. And you know it's for him to answer rather than for me to answer. But I would certainly have liked to see him have uh, an enhanced role because I think actually the previous role he had, which he did well, was was probably uh, too small for him. You know he could have had a, a beefed up role and, and done that quite successfully. Mm. Okay, can I ask, you know, let's play fantasy politics here and suggest that you'd won and you were First Minister right now, you've put in place your cabinet. Where would your priorities lie um, overall, but particularly how would you approach the economy just now in terms of the big challenges that we need to overcome? So the first thing is we need our key industries to be firing on all cylinders. You know, too often we think that we need fancy new policy areas. We don't. We actually have within Scotland phenomenal resources in terms of key industries, key uh, parts of the economy. You know, you're well versed in what we need as part of the just transition and the green industrialisation. There's great potential when it comes to food and drink. And I think it's about letting these parts of of our economy just go for it. You know, government doesn't actually need to micromanage, for example, what these industries are doing. Just let them go for it. In other words, try and lift some of the cumulative regulatory burdens on them at this period in time. That would be my first thing. And then the second thing is that you need to come in behind them and back them in a way that only the state can do. So we know that when it comes to a number of these industries, it's skills you know, unemployment is 3.3% or or thereabouts. And they cannot create jobs overnight. But we can help with the reskilling and the retraining to align with what these industries need. And we need to do that really fast. And there's two things that we could do, I think, pretty quickly. Yeah, I was just, uh, just very briefly, I'll let you come in, Andy, but I was just uh, visiting uh, Whitaker's Engineering in uh, just south of Stonehaven. Um, uh, high value manufacturing uh, in uh, company, uh, family owned, um, really, really interesting stuff. There's people doing things, components, um, fabrication, all these things for, for the oil and gas industry, and they're seeking to transition to renewables. And that is a microcosm of what we've got to try and achieve in part of the green industrialization. And they were saying to me, you know, just give us that little bit of encouragement. You know, we recognize there's not endless pots of money, but we can grow and we can expand and we'll make sure that this is done in Scotland as opposed to overseas. And I just thought, you know, linking back to what you're just saying there, um, that is the sort of things we just need to be saying, positive messages to these companies. And I really hope the new government takes that on board. Mm. Do you know, I, I just I can't help but feel that there's a green elephant in the room here, though, that needs to be addressed in that respect. I mean, you know, and for the, for, for listeners outside Scotland, I think it's important to understand that the, that the Green Party is not uh, in the Scottish government 
um, in order to provide environmental credentials to the SNP. The SNP didn't need any sustainability or environmental credentials. The Green Party is there for numbers. But the impact of the Butte House Agreement and having the Greens in government has gone way beyond the portfolios that Patrick Harvey and Lorna Slater hold. I mean, we are looking effectively at road building being on hold in Scotland. Uh, we have had massive implications for the private rented sector, unintended implications for the private rented sector in Edinburgh in particular. The way the Scottish government talks about oil and gas has changed completely, despite the fact that it wasn't supposed to be part of the Butte House Agreement. And one thing coming down the road is HPMAs, and again, for the benefit of those outside the political bubble, is a highly protected marine areas, which hasn't reached the public consciousness just yet. But when it does reach the public consciousness, it's going to be an issue like alcohol advertising or DRS or some of those things that people suddenly say, hold on, you're doing what to coastal waters? And what is it, what is I, it they're doing, Andy? Uh, there, there, there effectively are, are significant more exclusion zones for what some people would regard as pretty normal activity uh, in, in terms of fishing and other, mm. other activities that may not be able to take place as a result of, of this consultation. These are all things that have come in. And, and this is not a criticism of the Greens, I have to say. The Greens have made an absolutely phenomenal job of this. They have done a brilliant job. The SNP felt they needed a little bit of help from the Greens, and the Greens have exploited that vulnerability in the SNP to fabulous effect and have done incredibly well as a result of it. But a lot, I think, of what Kate was talking about during the campaign and the things that she wanted to do may have hit that green brick wall because the, the policy capture of the Scottish Greens on the Scottish government has been widespread. I mean, is, is that something that you would have envisaged would have been a pretty significant problem, Kate? And let me just come straight out and ask you, was the Butte House Agreement a mistake? Well, as somebody who has had to navigate and negotiate budgets, quite clearly having a majority in the parliament makes things a lot easier. But a lot of the debate and deliberation now happens behind the scenes. And quite obviously, it's no secret that I think the Greens were pretty delighted with Monday's result, uh, because a lot of what I, I had been saying does is, as it were, on the fault lines that exist between the SNP and the Greens. And the other part to this is that a lot of that features in the economy and in rural affairs. So it's the economy and rural affairs, particularly that I see in my own constituency, where there are challenges. And I think as a party, you know, we have always been a national party, the Scottish National Party. In other words, we represent fishermen and we represent farmers and we represent big business, small business, medium sized business and we represent workers. And so to continue to be the Scottish National Party, we have to be really careful that we are not neglecting key parts of our economy and key parts of particularly the rural economy. And I've already expressed considerable concerns with HPMAs because of the risk that it that exists to the fishing community. And I see that in my own constituency as somebody who has some of the highest landings when it comes to value in Malig. Hmm. I should just say at this point that um, Kate has been being a mum while doing this interview. Andy often struggles with his dog. Um, running around, which is testament to the ability of both, I feel, in this context. Uh, but at this point, Naomi has had to step out to another engagement. Um, <laughs> she's got a very busy schedule, so we're glad that she was on the podcast, but we'll let her go and live her life. Um, uh, go on, Jeff. what were you going to say? 
Yeah, I was just, just listening to your answer to Andy there. Was that then one of the reasons or key factors in you turning down the rural affairs uh, job? Uh, and can you just maybe allude to a little bit of the, the, um, the manifestations of the discussions that you had with Hums on that, on that basis? Well, there's always going to be more than one reason for decisions that have been taken. And obviously, as a rural constituency MSP, I have a huge interest in, in rural affairs and the rural economy. But I do feel that's a particular area where, uh, which is very prominent in the Butte House Agreement. And having already expressed some quite considerable concerns about highly protected marine areas during the contest, it would obviously be extremely difficult to then deliver highly protected marine areas as part of that brief. But of course, you know, it's 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 well known that I absolutely love the finance uh, role. It was a role I felt I could do well. It was a role that I think requires uh, particular insights right now as you know, with the um, renegotiation of the fiscal framework. Obviously, finances are stretched. And, and and lastly, you know, I think it is fair to say that after um, five weeks of a contest in which many things have been said, people would be looking to me to maintain integrity. And obviously, I would seek to support the government in full, whilst obviously trying to hold to perhaps some of the positions that I'd expressed during the campaign uh, around things like the highly protected marine areas. So there's a whole host of different reasons, but my you know, bottom line is that I said during the contest that we're at a crossroads, and I think we are, and I think there's real merit in taking a period out of time, out of government, to do some heavy thinking and some heavy lifting on policy and where Scotland goes next and the nature of Scotland's economy and what the case for independence looks like. And so I will be thoroughly engaged in, in all of that. Can I, just on that, how disappointing was it not to be offered at least the role of finance secretary again? Well, you know, Hamza Yusuf won. He's the boss. And the boss gets to pick his team. Mm. And in that regard... You know, credit to him where it is due. He had a conversation with me immediately after winning about, you know, my, my future role. He's been respectful. He's been warm. I have been respectful and warm in return, despite uh, some reports of um, perhaps slightly more impolite mm. uh, phrasing. And I absolutely respect him in that regard. And if I'd been First Minister, I too would have picked my team. And some might have you know, queried that, but that is his prerogative and it's a prerogative I I respect. I think it's, it's so fascinating to observe because I think we're so grateful for you taking the time to speak to us today because you're right, there is a lot of commentary about what goes on and to hear it from you who is living it every single day is so helpful just to help us understand exactly what is happening. Um, in terms of what you do now then, um, you know, there's been a lot of I think you've said in the last couple of days you want to spend more time with your family and that is admirable and we love that and we're seeing that lived out, hearing that lived out in this podcast now. But politically, what what else have you got? What do you want to do? So much. I have been on maternity leave for seven months and my constituency needs to know that the MSP, their local MSP, is back at the helm and raring to go in representing them and, and the issues that they face. 
I will be on the back benches asking questions on behalf of my constituents and perhaps uh, continuing to inform the debate as I have done during the contest. But I really want to get into the detail of some of the policy areas that I think need further developed in Scotland. You know, we have had new powers in the Parliament over the last few years. And I think that perhaps Civic Scotland or the infrastructure that supports decision making is not been as well developed outside government as it's had to be within government. And questions about, for example, how to deliver economic prosperity, how to expand the tax base, what some of the root causes of poverty, multi-generational poverty are in Scotland. All of these issues require, I think, far more intelligent debate about them than we often hear on the periphery of decision-making. Um, and I would certainly like to get stuck into some of that, both inside the parliament and outside the parliament. Mm -hmm. Does that mean you're going to be a loud backbencher, Kate? Are you going to be shouting from the back benches there? <laughs> I am going to be myself. And I think if we've learned anything during the contest, it is that I say what I think and I say what I mean. Just as we sort of edge towards a, a conclusion, it's been such an, an insightful and helpful conversation with you, Kate, and I really, really appreciate it. Um, I have a couple of just other retrospectives, I suppose, just to consider. Um, do you think you would be First Minister today if you didn't oppose same-sex marriage? Uh, I don't think uh, it's as simple as that, no. Mm. Absolutely not. I think that the wider public and indeed SNP members want their politicians to be honest and direct with them and then they can make up their own mind. Mm. I spent last night finally going through the absolute mountain of cards and letters that were received through the post and... I've literally got thousands of emails that still need to be properly read and replied to. And by a country mile, the vast majority say something like, I disagree with your views, but I massively respect you for your honesty and I respect your ability to say what you think in a country that respects freedom of speech. So I do not think it's as clear-cut as mm. you've just suggested. Mm. And I think there's something really interesting in that, in that perhaps politically and people who are into politics and all of that and wider society should take away from this, actually, that you can express a view and that people are supportive of your right to do so. And I think that's an interesting tone change, perhaps, in political debate that has been missing in any number of referendums or elections or whatever over the last couple of years. Um, and so that is notable. Um, I just have one final one as well, um, which I think based on our kind of shared backgrounds in the Highlands and as Presbyterians and our upbringing and everything, I just wonder to what extent this contest was a test of your faith. It was a test of how strongly I'm willing to be myself when others are identifying the advantages and the disadvantages inherent in that position. And it's a great question, um, which has sort of stumped me in terms of, I did not feel it a test mm. 
of my faith at all, funnily enough. I felt it a test for Scotland as to our capacity to debate and disagree well. And the test for me was whether I would quit and step out of the ring or remain and I chose to stay. And I hope that if nothing else, I managed to change the nature of the debate in a positive way. Mm. I think that much good is an- certain. Good answer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think even mm-hmm. on the episodes we've done so far, there is a terrifying outbreak of consensus from Jeff and Andy that that is the mm. case, that you know, changing the nature of the debate is actually a legacy from this contest to be proud of, I think. Am I, I'm, not, I'm not misspeaking, am I, Jeff? No, no at not all. at all. Not at all. I think it's a very, very good way to, to wrap things up, mm. uh, uh, Kate. And also thanks from, from myself. I think it's been a really insightful discussion. Yeah, it has been. And um, uh, it's a week that I think it's fair to say, Callum, it's one of the very biggest weeks in devolution's history. Mm. Um, and I think it's one that will have implications for quite a long time to come. Yeah. And I mean, and I, and I tell you, just you know, the news breaking over the last day or two, and at the time of broadcast, we don't know if there is going to be a by-election in Rutherglen or not. But I tell you, if I was, you know, an advisor in government, the last thing, the last thing that you want is a by-election mm. in the next few months or so um, to test you. So that, if you're to look at a positive way for the Scottish government and the SNP, that will focus minds, yeah. and minds need to be focused. Yeah. Um, Kate, thank you very much. Thank you for spending so much time with us. And I think it's so helpful, even only a few days after this thing ended, for you to be so, um, can I say cohesive? I don't want to be patronising, but for you to be so <laughs> switched on about the blur of the last five weeks and to, I think, if I may, give away a bit of a determination that there is, you have things you want to do and you want to achieve, I think is, um, is remarkable strength of character. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of Hollywood Sources. For those of you who are listening for the first time, please follow, please subscribe. Each week we have Andy, we have Jeff, and we have a special guest to analyse politics today based on their experiences. We hear from people who have lived it, who have breathed it, who have walked in those halls where decisions are made, who have been literally in the room. And they tell us about those stories, they give us gossip, they give us insight, but they give us crucial intelligent analysis as well. We will speak to you next Next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.